Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. In this episode, we're discussing how to handle downtime in campaigns. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? I understand you were interviewed recently by Oliver Brackenbury. Well, regular listeners might remember that I did a little interview with Oliver on a different podcast earlier in the year. He presents a podcast called Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, and I chatted with him about the Cthulhu mythos and how it's been developed over the years. Well, he started a new podcast recently called So I'm Writing a Novel. And, as the title may suggest, is all about his experiences writing a novel. In particular, he's writing a sword and sorcery novel and has become very involved in the genre recently. He's also started publishing a magazine called New Wedge Sword and Sorcery. But he's been talking to a number of people about different aspects of the genre. So he had me on for an episode, episode 54, which is now out, where we talked about the shared origins of the Cthulhu mythos and the sword and sorcery genre, and what the overlaps between them are, and what the differences are. And as ever, it was absolutely wonderful chatting with Oliver. I think it came out quite nicely. And if you've got any interest at all in sword and sorcery, then please do, well, for a start, check out that episode in the larger podcast. But also, I'll put a link in the show notes to New Edge Sword and Sorcery. They've got this deal going at the moment where if you sign up to the mailing list, you'll get issue zero, which is this trial issue that they're doing free of charge. Well, as regular listeners will know, we've been talking about a particular weekend that is rapidly approaching, and it's almost right on our doorstep at the time that this episode is released. So you've got another couple of days to get yourself in for player signups for the next weekend with good friends. Yep, those player signups will run until the 27th of October, and that's 2022, should you be listening to this in the distant future. The results of the player signups, the lottery draw, will be announced on the 28th of October, and the convention itself will take place between the 4th to the 6th of November. And you can find more information about where to look for that and where to sign up on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. We'll be releasing issue 10 of our fanzine, The Blasphemous Tome, for our Patreon backers in just a couple of months in December. So there's just a little time left. If you have any submissions that you wish to send in, either pieces of writing or articles up to 500 words or pieces of artwork, then you can send those to us at submissions at blasphemoustomes.com. And Matt, you have a scenario in this issue. Uh, is there anything you can tease our listeners with? Yeah, indeed. There's an accompanying piece, a little article I'm going to write up before the scenario, which I've also promised to send in a copy to the lovely ICU nurses over at Northampton General that looked after me. Going through some of the experiences I had with delirium, and it's such a weird perception-bending state that really is, is very hard to describe without making you sound like you should be put in a psych ward. It's a very weird thing that I'm hoping will make an interesting and kind of different scenario for people to play. This won't be your standard modern-day Call of Cthulhu scenario. This will be something a little bit more towards the weird end. Nice. And is this a modern-day setting, Matt? Yes, yeah, modern-day. And could they play it wherever, like America or Britain or anywhere in the world? Anywhere where there's a decent healthcare system where they can stand a chance of doing various <laughs> medical operations and procedures to you. So quite a few restricted <laughs> places in the world then, apparently. Okay, that could be open to interpretation. I wouldn't recommend somewhere like the middle of the Sahara, for example. I don't know. Unless there's a hospital out there no one's told me about. And if you are joining me on the October Horror Movie Challenge, or even if you're just following along with the reviews at home, then do check out blasphemoustomes.com, where I'll be posting my last few reviews over the course of the next week, as well as a little post-mortem about what I thought the highlights and lowlights of the month were. 
And you've been running some improvised games on Ain't Slayed Nobody, Scott? Yes. So for the last couple of years, we've been doing these improvised games at Halloween for Ain't Slayed Nobody. Cuppy Cups asked me to run them, and we've taken suggestions from the listenership for certain elements we can bring into play that either shape the characters or the narrative itself. And we've just really had fun with it. And we've recorded another one now for 2022, which will be going out... I think a little bit after this episode, but not too long. So listen out for that one. It's going to be called Dead Man's Tooth. And I hear that uh, Paul's thinking of heading north to Manchester for a grog meet. Yes, grog meet takes place in Manchester on the 11th to the 13th of November 2022. This is the, uh, I think, both virtual and real life convention associated with the Grognard Files podcast, which comes highly recommended from me. And from me. We were fortunate enough to have Dirk on the show back at uh, the start of this year. Yes, yes, back when Matt first fell ill. So there'll be lots of fun games and so on going on there. And now on to our main topic, dealing with downtime. When you're running an ongoing campaign, there may be gaps between chapters or individual adventures when time passes quickly or when you skip over the unimportant stuff. But how do we make this interesting or useful? Is it just something that we hand wave or does it present opportunities to make the game richer? Montage. Montage is your friend. (laughs) Well, first of all, what do we mean by downtime? Yeah, I don't think we're talking about just like, oh, we're not playing for a month in real life because you can not play for 10 years and pick up exactly where you left off. I mean, the chances of that are pretty remote, I'd say, but you could do, right? I'm sure someone has. What we're talking about is space in game time. So your characters have finished a chapter or an adventure or a story. They've finished a part and some time is passing in their world Maybe not much time passes in the player's world, but time passes in the game world. And what happens to the characters during that time? So maybe nothing happens and you just say, okay, well, we pick up again. It's a year later or a month later, maybe 50 years later. Who knows? Depends on the game. We're not going to role play it because that's the point. It's downtime. So I think that immediately sort of strikes a difference here. The point is that we're not then role playing that time because that wouldn't be downtime. To me, at least. Yeah. Traditionally, isn't this just when you do character advancement and shopping? I mean, that's what it's all about, right? I don't think character advancement is necessarily downtime. Because, you know, thinking about D&D and so on, in old school D&D, it was very much the case that you had to go out of the dungeon and take all your shit out with you to, like, level up, go back to town and, and you know, cash in your gold pieces and level up. I've leveled up, well, between sessions but not any downtime taking place for my character particularly. My DM, Robin, will just say, okay, well, I think, you know, we've played several sessions, everybody go up a level. Next time we'll be level five instead of level four, and we'll come back and we'll have done our homework and figured out what spells we've got and our new hit points and feats and all those sort of things. It's a while since I've played D&D, and I haven't played 5th edition, but when you're talking about things like spells and so on as the levelling up process, wasn't it traditionally the case that you had to learn those from somewhere? In the new D&D, do you just sort of naturally exude them or absorb them out of the atmosphere or something? Osmosis. Pretty much osmosis, I think. Different classes get them by different means. So if you're a cleric, you get them through your god or some kind of divine intervention wizards and warlocks and so on i can't actually remember how you get them off the top of my head but um there are various modes through which you might get them and yes perhaps you are supposed to spend some time learning them often that is you know you're learning spells overnight in preparation or a long rest in preparation for the next session there's a variety of different ways you get them so in a way yeah certainly i think Character advancement is often a part of downtime. Is shopping, because shopping is often something you do during the game. If if you're talking about, you know, that old stereotype of people saying, oh, well, you know, I want to get my equipment before we go off on this mission. 
that's often something that takes place like just after you've told them what you know what the mission is isn't it well i'm thinking back to my old D games and i guess even stuff like RuneQuest and maybe even traveler and stuff like that where you would have the written scenario the module and then before you started up the next one you'd had that little gap between them where your characters would go off and do things like go shopping and it's sort of oh yeah we got mm. some nice loot out of that last adventure let's go off and get some bigger swords or guns or magic items or whatever and then that would be your preparation for the next game and i always thought of that as being like a quintessential part of downtime i've been running a lot of vason recently and one of the things that comes up in the structure of that game is that there is a preparation phase, specifically a part of the scenario. So this isn't between scenarios, it's a key part of it, where you end up rolling your resources to see how much money you've got in the, the universal pot for the castle for each adventure that you go on. And it's people really scrounging together all their funds and then going out and seeing if they've got enough money to buy a lantern because very few <laughs> successes ever get rolled in my games, it seems. <laughs> a lantern's particularly expensive in this world it's an abstract point-based system where oh, you have right. a number of dice to roll d6s for your resources everyone rolls them the number of sixes that you get between you you put them in a communal pot and then you can go through the equipment list in the book and you purchase items depending on their availability their availability one even when you only get like two or three points of successes between you is suddenly a lot of your money is gone a lantern is one of the more helpful items, but it costs two points. So it's one of the first things people go for, but it's like, we've got a lantern and now we're poor. I'm just imagining turning up to the adventure and it's, the good news is we've got a lantern. The bad news is we can't afford any oil for it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> in that game, it's just a part of the investigation, a part of the story itself. Yeah, I've always seen shopping as part of an adventure rather than something that happens between it. Hmm. I do agree with Scott there that sometimes you do, particularly if you've been down in a game and you've acquired loot or treasure and you've got stuff and you want to invest it in your character, so you want to buy some more gear, that's the time when you can kind of spend the time perusing through equipment lists and so on, which you know all about, Matt. Fun times. <laughs> Said no one ever. What about travel? Travel between locations. I mean, again... It can be part of downtime or it can be part of the game. I mean, I know in um, the One Ring role-playing game, there's like a whole mechanic on travelling, but that's kind of part of a game. I think sometimes these things are hand-waved. So it's like, you know, last time we were playing, we were in, let's say, London, and we just kind of hand-wave it, and this time we we're in Australia or whatever. You just hand wave the travel that happened during downtime. But equally, you could hand wave travel during a game, right? You can just kind of redline it in mm. an Indiana Jones style and uh, say you've turned up in Peru or mm. wherever. But I guess the thing that turns it potentially into downtime, if we're talking specifically about Call of Cthulhu here, and specifically about classic era Call of Cthulhu, is that you have long travel times you have let's take mm. that example of london to australia that that's going to take you what a month or so i'd guess by ship and so that is quite a long time in which your characters are not otherwise occupied yeah un unless you decide to set an adventure on board that ship and keep them busy that way so that is that month where they can be performing downtime activities Yes, and we will come on to that when we talk about mm. Call of Cthulhu, specifically downtime in terms of training. Mm. Yes. The thing I love is the phrase that kept coming up between us when we played with Matt Knott at the MKRPG group, which was, oh, we have to go somewhere by boat, a long sea voyage, you say? I'll have more sand, please. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things we'll come mm. to. But I mentioned that you can't hand wave a lot of this stuff. But uh, some games, as we'll talk about specifically Call of Cthulhu, but other games as well provide mechanics for dealing with downtime and things you might do. Mm. When we're running games, is this something that we tend to focus too much on or is downtime something that we more often than not just skip over? My answer there would be it depends on the game you're playing. Mm. 
because particularly downtime used to be a word for me when I was running lots of World of Darkness games, particularly the World of Darkness live action games I ran. Downtime was the word that sent a shiver down my spine and brought me out in a cold <laughs> sweat. Oh, God, yes. It meant staying up until the small hours of the morning, trying to write up all the responses to the, the, the actions that everyone was doing, making sure I coordinated them so that we knew who was doing what, who was crossing over with who, who was acting against who, who won. And it was a real logistical juggling act and not a fun one half the time either. This is player characters interacting with other player characters though, Matt, but not at the venue where you'd hold a live action game. Yeah, correct, because with the format of how those games worked, and seems to be like the traditional format for live-action games that I've played in for the last 20 years, depending, uh, not depending on who runs them, it just seems to be the standard format, is that the night you turn up when you play the game, that is that night. So everything happens in almost real time. And then the downtime is everything that happens between that game and the next game, usually a mm. whole month that you have to plan and do stuff with. Wow. You don't just sit on your hands and wait around for stuff to happen to you. You normally have to go out and find and interact with stuff of your own volition. But sometimes you have players that work together, so they will submit actions where they've said, we as a group are going to do this. But then you might have player A goes to hit plot A, or plot B rather, player C goes and hits plot A at the same time, and you suddenly have two people that have hit the same thing without working together and obviously don't know that they're trying to achieve the same thing. Or they end up working against each other and you have to coordinate all this so that everyone knows what the hell is happening. That strikes a bell with me that what I think of downtime is predominantly independent. So it's what's your character doing, irregardless of what anybody else is doing. It's just isolated to what your character is doing in their downtime. It's not 100% exclusively going to be you as an individual, but I think that's usually how it is and that's how most of the downtime rules I'm kind of thinking of are framed. Yeah, but with me, it's always been, it's the, you focus it on an individual action. So an individual will submit a downtime to say, I am doing this. Mm. But if someone else also sends in an action that says, I'm doing exactly the same thing, they might end up colliding. So you have to then deal with that. Right. That almost sounds like a play-by-mail game. Yeah, kind of. It essentially does turn into something very similar in that intervening time between those games. And like yeah. I say, it can be a logistical headache trying to get everything set and have a cohesive explanation as to what has happened in this month for, for and also then tailor it to each character's perspective. You know what you need, Matt? A full-time job to do that stuff. This is why I don't do it anymore. <laughs> a spreadsheet. Oh, there you go. <laughs> you love the spreadsheet. I've got plenty of them. But yeah, I mean, I remember I was giving you lifts to and from the club in those days. And most of our conversation in those car journeys was you venting about managing the downtime of those LARPs. Mm -hmm. My impression of it was that GMing these things did involve, yes, obviously a bit of preparation for the actual live game and plotting stuff out there, but it did seem like 90% of it was managing the downtime. Oh, yes. Even to the point where I finally got a whole load of my collective responses. I formatted them up so they were a uniform layout and got them bound through lulu.com as print-on-demand <laughs> so that I had wow. that had them readily accessible. And these things were hundreds of pages long in letter-size format. They were big, chunky tomes that I had on my shelf. I've still got them somewhere downstairs. Matt's tomes. <laughs> Marvellous. Yeah. Oh, blimey. So, I mean, it really does sound like that was a play-by-mail game where just every now and then people happened to get together and LARP for an evening. Yeah, just there was that one night out of every 30 when they actually had physical meeting time. <laughs> so let's look at how Call of Cthulhu handles downtime. So at the end of most scenarios, published scenarios or chapters of campaigns, for Call of Cthulhu, there's often a little section at the very end called rewards. And this is simply where the keeper gives out rewards and they're pretty much exclusively sanity rewards or penalties, depending on what the player characters have done in the game. I guess that's the kind of first step of downtime. It's you've, you've finished the game and now it's something to do afterwards. I don't know whether you'd call that downtime or not, but it's something you might do before a um, investigator development phase. 
It certainly takes place in the same part of the game, so it's it's mm. kind of related. And then we have this big bit, which we broadly call the investigative development phase. And this is a big difference between playing one-shots, I think, and playing either an ongoing game or a campaign, whereby you're, you're ticking skills, right, to improve in your skills. So, you know, there's that thing, if you've ticked a skill, if you've used it successfully, then you've ticked it on your sheet, and you can roll, and if you roll above your present skill, then you get 1d10 points for it. The only exception to this being Cthulhu Mythos and credit rating. Do we feel that's a good way of, like, advancing skills? Any game system is by necessity an abstract and has got its own kind of assumptions. And, um, yeah, it's... It's not a question of whether it's realistic or unrealistic. It's a question of whether it's fun and whether it kind of suits the, the start of the game. And in this case, yeah, I'd say works fine. It's something that I've got used to because I've been doing it for as long as I've been playing role-playing games, pretty much, because almost all of my early role-playing experiences were with Call of Cthulhu, RuneQuest, and a few other Chaosium games at the time. So this still to me seems like a very natural way of doing things i think it sort of makes sense to base it on what your characters are actually doing i just wish the dice liked me when it came to my investigative development phases they hate me you're required to fail rolls matt that should be easy for you yeah the problem is i fail all of them to begin with i get hardly any ticks What about the the 90% rule about you getting sanity back? So if, if your skill rises above 90%, then you get 2d6 sanity back. Chance would be a fine thing getting to 60. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've only ever seen that happen a couple of times. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's quite a rare event. Because, mm. I mean, I guess as your skill gets higher, you're less likely to improve it. Yeah. Um, so you can bump it above that 90%. And there's concern about some people gaming that, <laughs> you know, starting off with high skills to begin with. But I've never been concerned by that myself. I don't see it happening very much. Well, I see this as a concern in all sorts of different ways in discussions on various internet fora about, oh, yeah, my players are trying to min-max their characters or optimise character builds and so on. And it's, yeah, my reaction to this has always been, it's Call of Cthulhu. What fucking difference is it going to make? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to make minimal difference at some points, at least. Yeah, if they want a high combat skill, that's fine. <laughs> But yeah, with what Matt was just talking about with frustrating skill increases, I think it's just become a running gag on how we roll that Joe has the worst luck with skill increases. Even when he does get one, it's almost inevitable that he'll just roll a one on the D10 and his skills just inch up bit by bit. And then what we were talking about earlier about taking the boat ride, Matt, Mm -hmm. this is one of the things that I remember doing you know you've got traveling on a boat and that is kind of then there's a bit of downtime there right because you're traveling you know in the 20s journeys took a long time you don't really get that benefit anymore because you take an air flight and it's like 12 hours maybe to america but if you're taking a boat then you can do training i think everyone decides to go to the end of the boat and start shooting clay pigeons yeah being fired (laughs) off the back of the boat invariably someone is going to pick up those guns you spend the whole journey just doing that. Either that or reading a tome in your cabin. Best not to combine the two, though. But you mean when you take an air journey these days, you don't sit there reading WikiHow articles to pick up new skills? I do not, Scott. <sighs> Although I do marvel at the news agents in the American airports where you go in and you know there's going to be lots of magazines about guns. Yeah. <laughs> which you Loads. just don't see in the UK. Yeah. If you've got a long period of downtime, like four months, then you can nominate that your investigator is doing some kind of training or study and get a tick in a skill. So again, it's not something you're going to do many times. I mean, in a whole year, you could get like three ticks. Um, But that's like some free advancement right there. So with training, do you actually need someone specifically to train you or is this just purely down to practice? I think different people are going to approach that differently. So I guess it depends on your level as well. So if you're a fairly high level in a skill, 
it's probably quite difficult to get somebody that's going to train you. Maybe you'd have to, this is something you'd negotiate with your keeper, really. So maybe it's something you've got to pay for. If you're working a regular job, when are you doing that? Ultimately, I think it's, it's up to the keeper, but they can kind of hand wave it in most cases, I would say, and say, yep, you want to do some training in accountancy. Okay, well, have a tick. Because there's a massively helpful skill. Well, it can be, right? I have indeed written a scenario where it provides you with the biggest clue in the game. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so you'd be a master at that, Matt. <laughs> I was looking back at RuneQuest 2 earlier because I was thinking in terms of downtime and training and so on. That was where my first exposure to this really came from. And obviously, Call of Cthulhu builds a lot on RuneQuest in that respect. Training was a huge part of character advancement in RuneQuest. I mean, it was like the assumption that you spend your downtime doing training. But there was this thing in there, and I don't think it's translated into Call of Cthulhu, that you use training to sort of build upon practical experience so that if you advance through experience, you could then spend some of your downtime training that skill, but you couldn't then train it any further until you got more practical experience. And it was sort of that cycle, which I kind of like, but I guess it's not really too practical for something like Call of Cthulhu. It's a bit granular for my taste, I must say that. Perhaps the compromise is that, and, and this is probably the case with RuneQuest anyway, because it's a similar system, you can spend the four months doing this training or study to improve your skills, but it's not an automatic raise. Hmm. You're then making a roll against your skills. So if you're already at 80% in that skill, you can spend four months doing it, make the roll, you may or may not improve. So the, the higher you are in that skill already, the harder it is to improve it. So that it kind of, offsets kind of the automatic escalation yeah i can't remember whether that's the case in runequest or not it is a very long time since i played it hmm. of course at the end of a an adventure you may well be injured you get your, your regular one hit point per day back for, for regular wounds and for major wounds you're making a con roll at the end of every week in most cases i think if there's any amount, substantial amount of downtime, do we not mostly just wave off the major wounds and say, okay, well, when you start again, you're at full hit points again? If I run scenarios back to back for the same group, I normally have it just saying, right, a few months have passed and just effectively mm. take it as read that that's happened. Because otherwise, the last thing I want to have is some poor player that fails those roles if they've yeah. taken a major wound and they're still just as near death's door for the beginning of the next scenario as they were at the end of the last one. It occurs to me that the only campaigns that I've run in recent years that have had that kind of structure to them have been Pulp Cthulhu, so that hasn't really been an issue. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know whether I'd do that or not. Uh, I probably wouldn't, but that's just because I'm a bastard. And this element of physical injury reminds me of Matt when we played with Matt Knott. Was it Orient Express? I think it was. And my character had been in the First World War. Oh, yes. He had a bunch of charts for us to roll on to see what war wounds we had from the First World War. So that was like downtime before mm -hmm. you even started playing, but not in a good way. <laughs> it was from the Green and Pleasant Land source book, if I remember right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because it was like <laughs> people complain about Call of Cthulhu characters not being very strong. I'm going to roll on some charts to make mine worse before I even start playing. <laughs> this took a leaf out of the Traveller book. It's kind of, did you almost die before the game even yeah. started? Or which limbs do you retain? Oh, my character had suffered like poison gas attacks and so on in the oh, trenches. So he, he was like just more debilitated before he even began playing. It was, uh, it's like, I have these wonderful stats and then I rolled on that table. Yes. But, it, you know, it built character. What can you say? <laughs> Seriously, I think that is, not that specifically, but I think that is part of what we'll talk about, which is coming up, about how downtime can be a time to focus on your character and sort of develop it, mm. but not just in terms of equipment and training, you know, not just in terms of points, but in terms of your actual character. But we'll come on to that. So you can have physical injury, but also you can be suffering from the effects of insanity, can't you? Mm -hmm. So temporary insanity goes away after like up to 10 hours. Indefinite insanity, though, again, the keeper can just kind of decide that 
okay, well, the next part is taking place a few months later, or indeed just like the next week, and you've recovered from that bout of indefinite insanity. But that's not a given. Yeah, your players are still playable even with that. So under the downtime rules, you can go into private care or be institutionalised. And each of those kind of require a, a role. Private care costs money and your chances of recuperating more effectively are much better under private care than being put in an institution. I finally used those rules a little while ago because I've been running the scenarios in the Covert Actions source book for World War Cthulhu Cold War. And between their missions, I look at how much time they've got available to them. And that literally is, right, we've got X many months to get into private care. Quick, hit us up. <laughs> and that it's rolling. And normally, yeah, we're getting one point back, a couple of points back, two points back, lose D6. Shit, back to where we started. With. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a game of snakes and ladders. Very much so. Yeah, just, just because the dice hate us. Now, I can remember my, one of my characters going into... Um... I can't remember if it was an institution, I think, in the Egypt chapter of Masks. Yeah, that was his fate. I think he did come out and was um, much improved. He says in inverted commas with a degree of irony there. I'm quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it occurs to me, I don't think I've ever used those rules. Hmm. Again, there's something you can kind of build on and not just use mechanically. You know, you can kind of tell about how the character's gone into... I don't know, Bellevue Hospital or wherever it might be, potentially having other characters or NPCs coming to visit them whilst they're there, or do they come and visit them? Who knows? You go into this particular asylum and you find this guy a couple of doors down that just all he does is draw and paint cats. Indeed. So that's recovering from insanity, but you can also just look to boost your current sanity points through uh, either therapy or self-help. Through therapy, as much like we talked about with self-help or you know, being in an institution, you're going to see a, a doctor, a therapist, a psychotherapist. You're getting some kind of therapeutic help, which can, with a role, perhaps boost your sanity points. Self-help is something different. This is where you're bringing in elements from your backstory. And it has to be something positive. You can't like lean on a phobia or a wound or a mania or something like that. So it has to be something positive. So perhaps a close relationship, perhaps going somewhere on a retreat, perhaps just having a nice holiday, something that can restore you. And we've all experienced that in real life, right? Where you go away and after that you come back and you feel better than you did before you left. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how different groups interface with this set of mechanics because I found some people I've run for really go for this, not just because it presents the mechanical opportunity to regain sanity, but because it presents some fun role-playing opportunities, and more importantly, I'd say, opportunities to develop the character's roots and history and make them feel more like a rounded, well, character. And when I was running my original playtests for The Two-Headed Serpent, I had some players, particularly our friend Alina, who really loved this mechanic and there was this ongoing plot thread to do with her character's family and her different attempts to make peace with estranged members of the family and uh, to try to protect them from the awfulness that she saw coming as a result of the main events of the campaign. And more often than not, she'd fail the roles when it came to mm. these downtime sequences. And so we had these scenes which we play out where basically her family relationships were just getting more and more tortured and horrible, particularly as her character was undergoing some fairly horrible physical metamorphoses and she was acting very strangely anyway. And that she was trying to make peace with her family and it was just getting weirder and weirder and they were getting more and more estranged and it was one of my favourite parts of the campaign. Whereas I've been running it for How We Roll recently and I keep dangling the sand increase in front of them like carrots saying oh yeah if, if you play out scenes with your backstory elements we 
we can have additional sand for your characters. Mm. And it's sort of, well, no, no, I want to get on to the next mission. It's, okay, all right, well, let's not bother then. As a result, I do feel that we'd sometimes miss out with that bit of character development and growth. But on the other hand, I guess for an actual play podcast, it does perhaps keep things moving a bit more. Well, I guess you've got to go with what your players are into, and some mm. people are more character orientated and some people are more mission focused but i feel it gives an opportunity to focus on the the backstory like that second sheet where you've got the, the stuff about your character's backstory because more often than not we're just looking at that front sheet with the numbers on and the backstory stuff can get forgotten and i think it makes you know if we're talking about character focused stuff i think all that backstory stuff if you get the more you can bring that in the more your character feels like a you know living breathing character and I think that probably is more suited to campaigns mm. than it is to one-shots, perhaps. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I had a similar experience in, you know, when I was running Two-Headed Serpent, I remember with Matt Knott again as, as a player this time, and him using the relationship with his brother. I think that both of them were in the Navy or previously had been in the Navy or something of that nature. So he'd meet his brother at some kind of naval club or something like that and with not so much role play but more kind of story tell a little scene with him and his brother so we weren't necessarily speaking in character it was more just sort of saying just a little bit of back and forth about what they'd do or where they'd go and give an overview of that that interaction just for like a minute or two and then you know there'd be a roll of dice he'd either get something back from that i.e a boost in a few points of sanity but as his sanity dropped, I remember there was one point at which the dice just went badly and we were like, okay, well, what does this mean? And, you know, he sort of said, well, clearly I've overstepped the mark with my brother and that's the sort of the end of the relationship. And that was quite poignant, really. Mm. And it felt significant thing in that character's story. But that element of downtime, his relationship with his brother had no impact on the, didn't appear in the actual game as such, you know, in, in the chapters of the adventure it could also work quite well if especially if you've got a backup character already assigned and it's that's the connection that you've got that you then have a degree of inbuilt prep that you can know what your backup character has been told by your primary about the campaign that's been played so you're you're already kind of forward planning for your inevitable demise because your hopes of success of getting through some campaigns are fairly slim Oh, I like that. So I could be spending mm. time with perhaps somebody I've got on my backstory. Let's say it's my brother, whatever. Mm. And so Matt could have then, if his character had met a sudden demise, he could have brought his brother in as a replacement sort of thing and it told him about it kind of thing. The next member of the Dibden family comes prepared and briefed. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> I think he was a member of the Dibden family as all Matt Knott's characters <laughs> were. A very extended family. But I've always enjoyed this aspect of gaming anyway, even when there isn't a mechanical reward or a mechanical incentive for doing it. These quiet times between missions or adventures, these bits of everyday life for the characters, where you get to see what they're like as human beings, yeah. get to see what their relationships are like, create a sense of reality for them. I think a lot of role-playing games just skip over that because you are going straight from one adventure to another and where you do have these quiet times, it is just mechanical, here's a bit of downtime and let's move on to the next bit. I feel like in a long-term campaign, that's a missed opportunity if you don't at least explore some of this stuff, mm. even briefly. That's one of the things I really like about this set of mechanics in that it gives the players a reason to do that. The thing I find with that is it can be a bit of a double-edged sword, that it's very nice for character building, on, and on paper it sounds like a fun exercise. Even if you don't get a mechanical benefit from it, the key thing for me is, is it entertaining? Particularly if I have a mm. character that is particularly suited to a particular scenario, and once that scenario is finished, he's waiting for the next thing, like the next mission to come along. If he's got a fairly dull life in between that never really impacts the main scenario you're playing do i really want to be bogged down by playing that 
in between the good stuff does it feel like it's just oh, i've got to eat my greens before we get the next fun session as long as it's an interesting thing that happens in that kind of inverted commas mm. mundane life then i'm all for playing it but if it's just going through the mundane reality i have enough of that in the real world yeah i suppose it's it's up to between you and the, and the keeper and maybe with input from the other players as well but to try and find something interesting in there that I mean, you talk about, you know, enough going on in your your everyday life. Mm -hmm. But I mean, hopefully, Matt, there are some interesting things happening in your life, in your real life that and we don't need to go into them. But like interesting things, that if you were a mm. character in a game, we could say, let's think about, you know, your relationship with your, I don't know, with your birds or, or whatever, you mm -hmm. know, something that excites you as a character. I just think that those moments are nice, but they're kind of few and far between in terms of mm. story, stuff that happens in the middle, next story. And, you know, there's little moments that happen here along the way, but I wouldn't want to have a prolonged, protracted play through the mundane aspects of it. I think part of that depends on the relationship you as a player have with your character and what you buy into about that character. I very rarely, when I'm creating characters, think of them just as instruments with which to engage with the adventure that I'm being given. I try to think of them and their backstories and so on as people. I try to think of them as, well, characters. And mm. as a result, when I'm given an opportunity to develop that character further and explore them and understand them a bit better, that to me is exciting, even if it is mundane. I don't need to just see them in danger to find them interesting. If I'm not finding them interesting in mundane situations, that to me is an indication that I've failed to build a character that's interesting to myself. And also, I think in the nature of this, Matt, you were sort of saying you wouldn't want to spend too long on it. I think in my experience, I wouldn't spend too long on it because if you say you've got five players, you're going around the table mm. and doing this with each player at the table. You only want to spend like two or three minutes with each player doing this, I think, just to, it's just like a little mini scene. And, and like I say, not necessarily role playing it, but just, just storytelling a few sentences about their character, just bringing in one of their backstory elements, making a role, just building on that move on to the next player so it's not like a a protracted thing just a little cut scene to them and then the next one and then the next mm -hmm. one is how i've kind of done it if you do want to play out more in-depth scenes like that to explore the character or one thing that i've done a number of times is got the other players around the table to play out the roles of some of the supporting characters in those scenes so if it is a family get-together or something like that, or meeting up with old friends or going to your old haunts and reconnecting with those, then having the other players take on the roles of people involved with that helps keep the scene alive and stops everyone sitting there twiddling their thumbs while that person is playing out their backstory scene. Yeah, yeah, that can be fun. I think bringing in some of these relationships in this way, I quite enjoy. I've played some games where you're in a conflict and you want to bring in the relationship with your father or something like that as part of the conflict and put it as a stake, mm. put it at risk in the scene. More often than not, that feels a bit contrived kind of thematically. And it can work if it's really relevant, but often it's like, well, I've got, you know, That'll give me an extra D10 if I um, bring in the relationship with my father. How can I do that? I don't really know. What about my father? You know, it's like <laughs> those kind of things feel a bit contrived. We did think about doing something like that in 7th Ed. But ultimately, it, yeah, for the reasons I've just stated, we, we didn't. I've seen it work quite well in games, but I think it's one of these things that's highly dependent on playing with the right players. I certainly know that there are some people I've played with regularly who I would never want to play a game like that with because they just look to crowbar every advantage they can in there. So suddenly, yes, every single conflict is going to be somehow about their father yeah. because they're going to get that extra D10. Or at least ways it's not about their father, but they're going to crowbar that yeah. in. Yeah, exactly. And then it just feels, yeah, just feels wrong. Whereas using them in these backstory elements, it feels like it is um, fitting to me. So there's also something called getting used to the awfulness 
This might be seen as a kind of sanity armor. Once you've seen a thing like a deep one, I think a deep one is 1d6 sand loss from memory. Once you've lost six points of sanity, cumulative to deep ones, you can't lose any more sanity to them by this rule. But time is a healer in a way. So every investigate development phase, that limit is reduced by a point. So over the course of a while, if you don't see any deep ones for, you know, a while, a few years, that resistance disappears. It's kind of tricky to keep track of. I'm not sure I, I keep a track of it. Yeah. It's something I've experienced in real life as well, that I'm extremely needle phobic. Mm. And I absolutely hate needles coming anywhere near me. And of course, when I was in hospital, I had nothing but needles. I felt like a proverbial pincushion. And there was, towards the end of my stay, when the phlebotomist had come round, it would be like, I need to take some more meds. I just like flopped my arm over the, the edge of the bed and said, there you go, help yourself. <laughs> right. It was a few moments of pain and that was it. But then because I've had so long away from that constant stimulus and not having to make my sand check every time the bloody thing came near me, I have felt that fear build up on me even more to the point where the last blood test I had to go, they heard me screaming in the waiting room. So oh, yeah, I, I know exactly how that feels. Right. So you were getting used to the awfulness, but it's wearing off. Yeah. Right. So just imagine what it would have been like if your phlebotomist had been a deep one. Was the normal vampire, so it's whether she has <laughs> fangs or gills, it's one of, one of the two. <laughs> what you were saying, though, about keeping track of this is one of these rules where I really like the idea of it, and I think it makes a lot of sense, but I cannot see any circumstances under which I'd be organised enough to actually keep track of it. No, I think it can come in like when you're in a scenario and you're, you know, deep ones are a good example, because <laughs> if you go to Winsmouth, you know, they're bloody everywhere, aren't they? <laughs> Every street corner. Have you seen them repeatedly in one or two sessions? You can probably remember how much sanity you've lost to them and figure it that way. Yeah. But on, on an ongoing basis, yeah, I mean, you can track it, but uh, I'm not sure many people do. I must admit I tend to be a bit more loosey-goosey than that. So I recently ran a campaign that involved a lot of ghouls. And I basically, after the first three or four sessions stopped asking for any sand rolls relating to ghouls because mm. the investigators had seen so many that they were completely inured. I didn't bother tracking the amount of sand that they'd all lost. I just figured by that stage, yeah, you've yeah. seen enough ghouls, it's not worth rolling anymore. Yeah. The thing I always find, it's that moment of thinking, right, you've made the sand check, and then rather than stop the flow of the narrative and stop the action happening, it's right, turn to the back of your sheet, mark deep one, lost how many points, and, so, mm -hmm. and writing it down. Just It's that moment of bureaucracy and kind of admin that really kind of stops things dead. But one thing that could be quite a nice little experiment and also play around with some people's perceptions if you're playing in an ongoing game, prepare a little sheet that has all the going back old school, going back to like first ed, where you've got all the silhouettes of the monsters. <laughs> oh, yeah. Have, have a little sheet that has them and like a subheading, like deep one, maximum points lost, and use that in a <laughs> game to keep track of it. But then you provide them with a whole load of them. So you think, well, who the hell am I going to meet on this list? Uh, anything <laughs> up to deep ones, serpent people, Chthonian, Dole. What's going to come at us next? <laughs> oh, the I Spy Book of Mythos. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking a bit more like those accident notice boards in factories and it's no deep one sand loss yeah. for zero, zero days. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a couple more bits in the um, investigate development phase. One is to do with employment and credit rating, which, which we explored in a previous episode. So if a character's financial situation looks like it's good, then they might get a boost in their credit rating. Probably more likely it's going downhill. Then there's a scale of, of changes that you can apply to decrease the character's credit rating. What do you mean my haberdasher's credit rating's gone down because I saved the world? What? <laughs> well, how much haberdashery are you doing, Matt? I haven't been to work for like six months, but I saved the world. How come I've not got more money? <laughs> you don't get paid for saving the world. Maybe you're saving the world through haberdashery. Have you ever thought of that, Paul? What, through fashion? Through correct accessorising. I live that every day. <laughs> my wardrobe says otherwise for me. So. <laughs> you're wearing a pretty good shirt, Matt. I have a handful of Hawaiian shirts, which I've uh, managed to slowly creep colour into my wardrobe. But that's uh, 
small steps. <laughs> yeah, quite remarkable. Okay, and the last thing on the list is aging. Something, you know, none of us can escape. Yeah. I mean, if it's like a few weeks, no problem. But if you're playing and it's like 10 years later or 20 years later, which, you know, I don't see why not, particularly yeah. with play a character in the 20s and then jump forward to the 40s or, or whatever, right? So decades can pass. And this is one of the things that people complained about when uh, we brought Seventh Head out, you know, among the many things people complained about. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we rode the wave. But aging, I mean, does this chart look right? He asked Scott, just for no good reason. <laughs> the bit that I would absolutely argue against is yeah. reducing app at 40 and 50. Because I don't know about you, Paul, I get better looking every year. You do. Every time I see you, I think you're better looking. Yeah. Reducing move by one, yeah. I mean, just one? Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> I get winded getting out of my chair now. What would you say, Matt? I'm rapidly approaching a uh, a big round number. You are. Well, you got a year to go, right? Yeah. Let, this time next year, I will be staring down the barrel of losing one move, reducing my app, and deducting strength, con, dex. Everything's going downhill from here. Yeah. So you deduct five points from among strength, constitution, and dex. So you can take one off one and two off the other two if you wish. So it's not like you reduce them all necessarily. But you do make an improvement check for education. So, you know, you've you've learned stuff, Matt. Again, I'd probably argue against that because I don't feel myself getting any wiser with age. No, we make the role. We just, we just keep succeeding. That's the problem rather than failing it. I mean, is wisdom and education the same thing? I don't think they are. So you're not getting wiser necessarily. You just know more random nonsense. No, again, I really don't feel like I've learned anything. Well, maybe you fail the roll, Scott, because it's an improvement check. Yep. So clearly you failed it. I can't account for that. <laughs> so do we have anything in the rule book for ages after 60, or does it just assume that once you've hit 60, your life is over? No, it does go up to like 80s, I think. I just edited it down a little bit for the notes. Wishful thinking you get that old. I mean, if you're playing Call of Cthulhu, I don't know what the chances are of playing an octogenarian, but yeah, you could do. Yeah, it's just 60. 60 used to seem unimaginably old. It's now mm. three years away. Yep. Ay, ay, ay. You get no consolation from me. What can you do? I've got a year on you, so you've, you've got a bit of a buffer there. Yeah. Well, it's not like you're shielding me from it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to happen. I'm testing the way for you. Yeah. Yeah, well, better than the alternative. Are there any other games which we've played which are notable for their downtime mechanics, you know, that, that have something about downtime built into them. Well, I did mention RuneQuest in passing. Now, I've not played RuneQuest since RuneQuest 2nd Edition, so I don't know whether this still applies to the current one. But yeah, there was that whole, as I mentioned before, cycle of learning from experience, then training, then learning from experience, then training. But it was just a given in the game, in a way that it's not in Call of Cthulhu, that you would be training. Because advancement is a huge part of RuneQuest, again, in a way that it's not in Call of Cthulhu. Because you have certain milestones that you're really trying to get to. Becoming a rune lord or a rune priest, where your characters are either sort of master warriors or master priests. This involves your skills and your stats getting to a certain level. And actually, that's a good point. There's something that does come up in Call of Cthulhu sometimes, which is sort of addressed in RuneQuest, which is stat training. So you can improve stats in RuneQuest through training, through physical training, or you can improve your charisma through oratory training or whatever. You can improve your power through magical conflicts. But I see this turn up in questions every now and then in Call of Cthulhu, particularly where you've got scenarios where characters' stats might have been damaged. Let's say that your character has encountered a dark young at some point and had some of their blood sucked mm. out and as a result has lost some strength and maybe con. There is nothing in the rules about getting that back. 
I've seen this come up any number of times on places like Reddit, where people say, okay, well, how does my character get all this back? And me personally, as a keeper, my answer tends to be, you don't. Other kindlier keepers might be saying, yeah, all right, well, you can go off to the gym, have a healthy diet, whatever, try to build your physical strength back up and recover from this. This strikes me as being very much the kind of thing you could do during downtime if you were so inclined. Is that something that either of you have ever addressed in your own games? I think I tend to fall into the not Scott camp when it comes to that, (laughs) where I like my PCs. I try to be a nice, friendly GM to them. I hold the carrot up and say, you can have that stuff back over time, that it gradually, your body replenishes itself, your body heals from that experience, rather than just go, you're fucked. Oh, you're weak, Matt, you're weak. Yeah, I mean, under Dark Young, I'm just just checking it now, and under the grab manoeuvre, it does say this strength cannot be restored. Mm. So it's like a permanent weakening that your character is suffering. Yeah, I think if they can kind of storytell how they're going to change that, then I'd be open to letting them change that. Because as as we said earlier, yeah, they can kind of boost their skills and stats for a few days, but ultimately they've got to face some pretty horrible things. So, you know, it's only going to protect them so far. And some of the draining mechanics in some of the attacks, I'm pretty sure do say over a certain time they get the things back for specific monster attacks. You can always use that, uh, I'm determined to go out there and replenish these stats and bring myself back to my former health. You could have that become the springboard into another scenario. Like, you're looking for some bizarre new medical treatment. Well, there's this fellow called West Mm. who's advertising for test subjects. Yeah. Yes. And I think in Pendragon, they have the winter phase where you're Mm. playing as a downtime phase where you're developing your character or your squire and and things like that i've played a bit of pendragon but i haven't played a a campaign of it to experience that but i think if i understand it correctly the winter phase the kind of downtime period is quite a key element in that and it certainly was in ars magica i was just about to ask about that yeah yeah i mean in ars magica you're playing magi you're all playing like powerful wizards everybody else is kind of in terms of power are quite a long way below you so your your main characters are wizards and you'll have downtime and each month of downtime you know you can be doing stuff as a wizard you can be doing study you can be learning spells you can be inventing spells you can be kind of creating magical essence or, or viz from the the surrounding area and another thing i really remember is the longevity potions because your wizards tended to often start old-ish, as I recall. I can't remember if there was a guide on their age. And the campaigns might go on for years and years, and you might have quite a lot of downtime. And so getting this longevity potion was was pretty important. It was quite a tricky thing to do, and you'd have to check each year, and at the end of each year you'd have to check to see if it was still working and things like that. So there was a lot of interesting downtime stuff, and also like getting familiars or apprentices, and that was all you know, downtime mechanics. Has your potion gone beyond its sell-by date? Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have T-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to the podcast. Uh, Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new Patreon backers to thank by name. Starting off with a thanks to Daniel Claminda. And thank you much to Simon Taylor. And thank you very much to the wonderfully named Wizrad. And thanks to Fabio Venturini. And thank you very much to the wonderfully alphanumeric Hudson15983. And thank you very much to Zarazak. And thank you to Saps. And thank you much to Franz Schmutzer. Hopefully I've pronounced your name right. And thank you very much to Kevin Miller. And thanks to Ian Zelaznowski. And thank you much to A. Grant. And thank you to J.F. Boyven. And thanks to John Raphaelson. 
And last but not least, thank you very much to the singular Angus. And just to reiterate, if we have mangled any of your names, and let's face it, we have, then please do get in touch, let us know, and we'll have another pass at them, and we'll try to do better this time. And if you've enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review somewhere where you get your podcasts, and check out our merchandise, our Patreon, and our Discord community. Well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com I should really remember I need to submit my downtime for the Sabat game now.